You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 390, the dangers of being Russell Brand, 50 things turning 50 in 2019. Don't worry, we're not looking at all of them. And what's so great about The Cure? It's all coming up after Bebop Deluxe and Ships in the Night. Another band that was expected to become much more successful than it finally turned out. In fact, this track was their only hit single. Bill Nelson does, though, have the consolation of having a star in Wakefield City Council's Walk of Fame. (laughs) 
Um, it reached number 23 in the UK in 1976. Bebop Deluxe and Ships in the Night. I'm enjoying our celebration of bands that should have been massive that mm. then somehow won. I might pick something by late 90s uh, Big Hopers Terrace, who didn't go anywhere, possibly. Or maybe Campag Velocit. Yeah, ex- exactly. There's there's so many of them that you think, you hear the first track or two that uh, you ever hear from, and you think, oh, this band's going to be huge, these are great. And then something, it's just anywhere. luck, throw of the dice, whatever it is. And as you say, yeah, they don't go anywhere. Well, oh, in the case of Gay Dad, more to yeah. do with the fact that the lead singer was quite irritating. And a, a terrible name, just a terrible yes, name for true, a band. Welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 390. I'm Terence Stackham and look, it's Juliet Harris. Always excellent to invite people to look into what is essentially an audio-based format. But still, hello, everyone. Uh, there, Hope well. I take your point. There was a drawback to my introduction there, wasn't there? But really? then having said that, I'm enjoying this recent trend of, of to-the-point introductions mm. as opposed to mm. live Speaking, uh, broadcasting from Harris Towers, the one, the only, the destroyer, Juliet, Lucy, Harris. I mean, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I love those type things. Yeah. But I've enjoyed the 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 the, uh, the relative brevity and focus mm. of your recent introductions. Long may it continue. <laughs> Although he seems to have been around forever, um, I was quite surprised this week to note that Russell Brand is still only 43 years old uh, <laughs> I mean I feel much older than 43 just thinking about <laughs> Russell Brand I have to be honest well it's also a measure of his rather meteoric rise to fame that we don't have to qualify him by saying TV personality Russell Brand mm. film star Russell Brand political activist Russell Brand He's sometime no- radio guest Russell Brand uh, well indeed yes yeah. he's now known worldwide by, by his, his, his name alone now his career has been pretty much a constant upward trajectory trajectory albeit plastered with incidents that might have killed off many other careers um, we all like to be plastered with incidents i quite like that <laughs> well he was expelled from the italia conti academy when he was mm-hmm. a boy he got sacked from mtv yes. um, as you alluded to those disastrous dismal phone calls to andrew Sachs on the mm-hmm. radio there's plenty more to choose from yet for many that there, there, there has always been for, for many, an endearing charm about Russell Brand that has seen him bounce back each time. Now, this week, Brand was featured in an in-depth interview in the Sunday Times magazine in which, despite yes. all his right-on credentials, he spoke about how his wife, Laura Gallagher, actually does all the per- parenting of their two daughters, who are two mm. years old and six months old. Talking to Decca Aikenhead, who often does squeeze personal information out of her interviewees. She's very, uh, she's, she's very, very shrewd, good, she? rather yeah. in the manner that Lynn Barber used to do. Yes. Um, Bran came across as someone who talks the talk of a right on lefty, but who in reality is an old fashioned, the children of the work for the little lady mm-hmm. sort of father. Now, Jules, this interview has been widely reported and with such unfavourable comment aimed at Russell Brand. Um, is it any of our business? And is this a blow for the previously unstoppable rise of Russell Brand? <laughs> well, I'm going to try out a new concept here. I wonder mm. if this will go viral and take up. Um, you might say that, that Russell Brand you know, thinks that he's very right or very yeah. friendly. I'm going to accuse him here of sleepwoking. Oh, very so sleepwoking. So he's sort of woke. But he's not really, because he's kind of doing it whilst asleep, essentially. So so I feel, maybe this will work. Maybe, anyway, I do feel that he's one of those people who is, or just a fraud, if you want to put it in slightly less flowery language. Um, how ironic that one should speak in flowery language. I don't know if you've ever had the, uh, the fortune slash misfortune to read a Russell Brand column when he used to write football in The Guardian. Yes, yes. Very uh, florid. Very, very florid, very, very flowery, yes. And, uh, yeah, not very Swallowed good. Swallowed a thesaurus. 
Yes, and in, in place of actually being able to write in my somewhat mm. uncharitable view. But anyway, he's one of these people, like you say, like like the proverbial Lazarus slash bad smell. He seems to keep popping mm. up again to sort of enlighten slash haunt us all. Um, I do. Uh, the problem is, is that I would have less of a problem with him being a regressive idiot when it comes to parenting if he wasn't in in sort of the previous breath trying to you know doing his radical political podcast that he tries to. I mean, the idea in 2015 that his endorsement of Ed Miliband would seriously change the weather is just ridiculous thinking about it now. I mean, I thought it was ridiculous at the time anyway. So so he has got this... Um, he's got this kind of... He was cultivating this political side, but... I wonder if he felt he'd gone out. Russell Brand seems to do lots of things for a little while, doesn't he, really? And then, yeah. and then he moves on and does something else. And I don't know if he's got some... Because I know that he's talked in the past quite openly about various problems that he's had in his life, and I don't know if, if he genuinely has some sort of attention deficit thing that he just seems mm. to keep moving on, or whether he is just a sort of flighty sort of fashion-following sort that then wants to go on and do the next thing. I don't know. But, yeah, I find it a bit offensive. You know, you can either be a progressive sort of lefty-type person doing having this progressive political platform, or you know you can, or you can have aggressive views about parenting. I don't think uh, and and you know, male roles in parenting. I don't find it particularly impressive. I think to be honest, I thought that Russell Brand was increasingly over for a while. Anyway, really, I hadn't heard it was perhaps a bit cynical, maybe. But you know, had he not made that comment in this interview, was anyone really still thinking about Russell Brand? What what has he been on recently? What has he been doing? He hasn't been presenting the big brother thing i don't not that i watch that but that's something he has been doing i haven't really seen him on very much not that i mean to be honest have to, you know if russell brand was on something i would probably want to avoid it i think i did see him on qi a while ago but mm. i you know i just i wonder if this is a kind of a if he doesn't even mean this but it's just a way of unless you know it's possible as decor aikenhead has, has wrote it it's quite possible that you know he she has him a good out of him but mm. i wonder if it might be a how do we get Russell Brand back in the spotlight? Is there mm. such a thing as bad publicity? That sort of thing. Because I'm not entirely convinced. Will it stop his meteorotic rise? Well, the fact that he's been in films that keep bombing, like Arthur, for example, <laughs> the fact that he marries people and then divorces them, the fact that, you know, he, he gets sacked from high-profile radio jobs, you know, is... You know, I'm I'm not convinced that he's still a thing anyway, really. He certainly had a charmed life in the sense of his career, but there has always been, um, again, as I think you... you, you kind of uh, mentioned it a feel of emperor's new clothes about russell brand particularly yeah, when absolutely when he's attempted to uh, advise in inverted commas us all mm. on political matters and um i found that when he's challenged when he's been challenged on those political matters he seems to have little of substance behind yeah. his views absolutely. and he, he has this manner of saying things with with real conviction that we're almost led into accepting what he says as definitive but there's often a, a lack of depth but i mean some people find him quite charismatic and maybe he can still find ways to express his talent i don't know if he chooses to do so i i suppose he's made pots of money from movies because he, he did make about five or six in a row the, the arthur one was awful but there were a, a couple of other ones where he played a pop star get me to the greek and finding oh, sarah I mean, somebody oh it was it was forgetting sarah marshall That's it, or something, it, yeah, like, something that. like that and he had yeah. he had some moderate success in those films i think mm. 
I wouldn't say I wouldn't define it as much more than moderate. And then Arthur was meant to be the remake of Arthur was meant to be the vehicle that launched him onto greater things and didn't. No, that that was just a a terrible idea from the beginning right through to the to the very end. So yeah, you could be right. It could be a way of his people encouraging um, more awareness of the brand of Russell Brand, and then maybe we'll find (laughs) he's got a new book out or a new tour coming up or something. Given that his his original autobiography was called My Bookie Work. But it just kind of tells you all you need to know, really, doesn't it? Coming next, 2019 is the 50th anniversary of so many events we can't list them all. But we'll look at a few of them um, after this track, the new single from Unloved. quite a fan of the, of, of the Unloved or Unloved as I think mm. they're just known um, they're a little bit of one of the bands at the moment because 
their music from their first album was featured prominently in the TV series Killing Eve in the ah. first season of that. So, and and as a result of which, there's now increased interest in their second album, which is due out, I think, in March. And this is taken from that. I heard it playing on the radio the other day, and I just I really liked it mm. instantly. I I thought it was just a I liked its kind of '60s girl group throwback. It almost sounds a bit Jesus and Mary Chain, and that they used to sound like a '60s girl group with a wall of noise. And this is this is not dissimilar really so um so the band is called the unloved and that song is called love strange enough and it is from their second album heartbreak which like i say is i believe due out in sort of uh, march time i think it's a fascinating trail that really motors along but what i wanted to mm. ask you is do you think it's fair to say there's a bit of uh, pj in the influence yeah, there, there? Is, there's not mm. there's not dissimilar is there? there's a bit mm. of pj holby about mm. there i mean you can hear the influences in it yeah i i still enjoy it it's still a, it's still it clatters along and it's quite it's good to wash up to i can give you that <laughs> as the top tip people Excellent. The American magazine Mental Floss has, pe- mm. has published a list of 50 things turning 50 this year. And for someone of my age, it was quite startling to be reminded of the speed, the sands of time ever away. Uh, because although I'd only just entered my teens then, it, it doesn't feel like 50 years of zip by since Led Zeppelin's first album, Chappaquiddick, Midnight Cowboy, Butch Cassidy. Mm. We're going to look at a handful of these 50th anniversaries. For, for me, a couple had a really significant impact impact on my young naive life and the first one for me to highlight is that 2019 marks the 50th anniversary since the Woodstock Festival Mm. obviously I wasn't there I'd just turned 14 I was living in Middlesex in England (laughs) 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 practically you know it wasn't really possible for me to get over there Um, in fact Woodstock didn't have such a major impact on me until the following year, 1970, when the movie came out. And mm. I bunked off school one afternoon to go and see uh, the film with some school uh, school friends. And it was an absolute life changer for me, it really was, to, to see half a million young people in America who seemed to feel the same way I did and to see an alternative way of mm. life, which... By the way, oh, by the way, of course, it didn't work out uh, at all. But it was so great to see at least a notional movement for peace in a time of political upheaval with Nixon, the war in Vietnam. Mm. But what now? This now seems absurd in our current age. But this is my overriding memory of Woodstock. Is one of the incredible things was seeing all these artists and groups like Santana, Crosby, Stills mm. and Nash. Was seeing them in colour because it's hard to imagine if you're younger than fifty or so, and I know that rules you out considerably, uh, George. But um, <laughs> if you're younger than fifty, so colour television was still rare in the UK mm. in 1969, and so seeing this amazing world, but on huge screens and in full colour, was just it was just mind-boggling. Yeah, I can, I can imagine, actually. I, I can imagine that would be... Sort of, speaking of, uh, to go off on a slight tangent, I will come... Or a slight tangerine, to use a male prophecy. <laughs> uh, I, um, I, I will come back to the point. But when I was speaking to someone about the other day, when I was younger, um, when I was very little, three and a half, I don't think I was wearing glasses, so I must have been pretty little, uh, my nan came down to stay with us, and she was um, not seriously unwell, but she took to her bed with some sort of cold. And uh, I remember sitting in our spare bedroom in the, in the single bed with her, and we 
we watched Gone with the Wind on TV oh, and she explained yeah. it to me. I know, what a great rainy day sort yeah. of sick bed film. But we watched it on our black and white portables. So about mm. 14 years later when it was on at our local cinema in glorious Technicolor, I, I, it was a shock I thought I would never mm. get over. I genuinely spent exactly. years in a pre-Google age thinking that I was in black and white. Mm. Um, when we went to see, um, I went to see the, I think we might have spoken about some podcast previously, I went to see the exhibition Revolution at the V&A mm. a year or two ago. I think you went as I well. I did, yeah. I went with my mother, who was 16 in 1969. So mm. actually, it was really, it was really great going around. Also, it's great spending time with her always, mm. but it was really great to go around because she was always say, "Oh, it was like this," and I do remember this, and I don't remember that, and all that kind of thing. And the final room that we went round the exhibition was showing oh, the film yes. of Woodstock and playing it in that glorious surround sound. I mean, we lasted about 20 minutes before it really was too loud, and we had to kind of go and mm. recoup and reconvene in the cafe. But um, I just thought it was great because they have floor cushions and it was almost almost like being there really my mum had the lp and i've got two out of three discs of the lp that i got in the job lot which is you know <laughs> two-thirds better than nothing but um it's like you say it's a seminal soundtrack mm. i mean i i nearly picked easy rider because it lost there's a lot of a crossover mm. between that i think and a lot of those bands and like you say it was it was a real moment and it was it was almost like the the peak of the 60s and the start the start of the death of the 60s as well wasn't it really Jimi Hendrix dying not long afterwards at the Isle of Wight festival and of course the nightmare that was Altamont and the and the mm. Rolling Stones and the Hells Angels it almost felt like sort of peak 60s and yet the moment at which everyone knew it was starting to sort of go really absolutely absolutely right and uh, rather you went to that um revolution exhibition but it, yeah, it's it was superb yeah slightly different segments because I, I went with um one of our executive producers, Hillary, and we, we were, yeah, and we were in that um, Woodstock room right at the end. But we were being hustled out because it was right oh, at the end you? of the day, oh, that's a and there was this geezer saying, "Oh, keep moving, keep going." You know, thanks very much for coming, ladies and gentlemen. So we just were sort of glancing over our shoulder at Jimi well, Hendrix. And, we yeah. spent about twenty minutes in there, and actually, we said afterwards it would almost be worth going again just to sit in that room if you pay however much for the ticket. It would be worth mm. it just to sit and kind of experience the whole thing. Really, we thought it was it was phenomenal. Well, what has taken you? Your attention from the year 1969, Jules. Well, for me, it's it's the big one, as I believe they say, at the moon landings. Oh, for yes. me, that's that was not just of this world, but out of this world, man. To go a bit mm. smashing nicely, but yeah, I just I, what I just then the most enormous impact i really i was 50 years this year obviously I, I was not alive in 1969 eagle listeners might be aware um and so i wasn't i wasn't sort of here for it at the time but the idea that you could the idea that you know that we could go to the moon and it seems to be kind of out of fashion at the moment whether with climate change it will come back into fashion i don't know but um i at the same time as sort of saying that for me it really did change the world and that it, it briefly opened our eyes towards other other encounters didn't it? and also interesting from a foreign policy perspective the ridiculous space race of the 50s and the early 60s between you know the great powers of the world as then was the us and uh, the ussr um interesting now of course that china i think are now looking at doing a space program yeah. who knows maybe space will become like i say in the era of climate change maybe space will become another timely flashpoint i don't know but um there's a, a fantastic book um called um Moon Dust in Search of the Men Who Fell to Earth by Andrew Smith that was written, um, uh, came out in 2005 and it was written from the perspective or rather the realisation by the author that we might at some point come to a stage where there is nobody alive who's walked on the moon. Mm. So he tries to track down all the people that have walked on the moon. And it is a really interesting and moving book in places. So I would recommend that for anybody that's interested. But no, for me, it, it's 
you know it it, it i almost can't explain the impact that it had really for me it was just it was at that time the peak of sort of it felt like the peak of the world's technological capabilities and in a way it it, it sort of still is up there isn't it really we still have space programs we're still trying to we're still trying to go to mars and discover other galaxies and other planets but that was the the first point at which people realized they could do it and the idea that it was all televised and sort of in later mm-hmm. years there having been things like the challenger disaster and stuff mm-hmm. happening stuff exploding live on tv the, the just the sheer risk that was involved and, and you know the idea that almost anything could have gone wrong i think it's just a, a, a spectacular achievement well one giant leap Indeed, and it's it, do you know it still seems like an extraordinary achievement fifty years on to me. Even today, it would seem incredible. I think to be able to send a vehicle so very far and yet land it on a pinpoint position. And the the other point you made there is so true that they televise the thing now today in our digital world where you can get a camera on a pinhead. But back then, they had to have great big clunky cameras with them yeah, and yet managed somehow to send the pictures live back to us here on earth it's the most extraordinary thing it yeah, really absolutely. is absolutely most times um i drive into london i park around the kind of savile row or old burlington street part of mayfair because it means an easy walk to the theater or into soho yeah. or whatever and i never fail to stop and look wistfully up at number three savile row um, now an Abercrombie and Fitch children's clothing oh. store, which does yeah, it does sort of rankle a bit. I don't know why it should, mm. but it does. It feels it jars, but the uh, the fabric of the building remains, and you can still see up to the roof line where, on the thirtieth of January, nineteen sixty nine, the Beatles with Billy Preston on keyboards played a forty two minute set with John Lennon wearing Yoko's fur coat. Oh and, yes, yeah, and Ringo wearing Maureen Starkey's uh, plastic. Mac um, to keep them out, keep the cold out while they were playing. Um, Clearly, they planned this well. By the <laughs> yeah. I had this vision of these grumpy women going, "Why have you not brought a coat? You yeah. have to wear mine." Exactly. And luckily, there was film crew there, so we can relive those forty-two minutes in the film. All, excuse me, all over YouTube is really charming because it's intercut with Vox Pop interviews with members of the public in 1969 down below, and that's a really fascinating, fascinating insight as well into how people felt uh, 50 years back. Um, it was the last time they would play together in public, and 1969 was quite the year for the Beatles and their fans because the last album they ever recorded together, Abbey Road, was released mm. in September 69, yes. and we also had the John and Yoko bedding so 1969 a big year for the beatles absolutely and again like the, the like the feeling of a sort of an end rather than mm. a beginning i know that they did do let it be after after abbey road but yeah abbey road was the last kind of proper band album really, yeah they recorded it? let it be before abbey road but it was released yeah, so, after and so yeah. that's yeah that's the yeah kind of I, uh, and so in a way conundrum. maybe it was the ending of them mm. wasn't it really and of course it had the end on it didn't it so uh, yes. so so yeah, I, I like you say, just the and of course it launched a thousand jokes again. It's a cultural jumping off point at this point. The excellent uh, Beatles uh, parody episode of The Simpsons called the the B Sharps, where they have their rooftop concert oh, yeah. at the end, and uh, and they make the joke about having finally passed the audition, and someone goes, "I don't get it." Before the show starts, <laughs> it's uh, no, I, I like you, I, I adore the Beatles, and I think it's I, you know it did feel like a 
and it wasn't it wasn't really trailed or advertised, was it? It was almost mm. they seem to do everything before everybody else, and they yes. seem to have done everything before everybody else. Been about fifty years, so they sort of invented the flash mob, didn't they? <laughs> they sort That's of a good the point. Kind of the, yeah. They kind of invented the sort of the the surprise happening, the gorilla gig mm-hmm. that we've heard so much about. That they, you know, they did it again. They did it. They invented heavy metal with Helter Skelter. You could mm-hmm. argue, in a way. Tomorrow Never Knows is basically 90s dance made in 1965 <laughs> on Revolver. I mean, they did they did so much that 40 years ago, 40 years later, people caught on a cotton and go, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's good. Maybe we could do that. Maybe that's a thing. So, so yeah, I like you. I'm a huge fan of the business, and I do think that it's quite a quite a set, like you say, a seminal year. And Abbey Road, one of my favourite Beatles LPs, still really does stand up, I think. Absolutely. What's your second pick from 1969, Jules? Well, sort of going on this idea of the 60s mm. as being sort of generational change, and it did feel it was the time, mm. and I think we've touched on this before, where at the, the start of the 60s, the Star Six were sort of rebelling against the old order, really, mm. and we were sort of cu- we were coming out of the post-war time, still coming out of rationing, having not not sort of not very recently, not sort of very far away stops. It was still a very recent thing, and it seemed like the 60s really were the sort of every everything became younger the 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 kicking against the older establishment and, and all of a sudden younger people started to have a voice and and you know with things like woodstock and with sort of huge protests and stuff people younger people started you know they were teenagers that was that was a thing you know young people were, were targeted for marketing young people were, were targeted by groups that you know had you had the pop programs it seemed like it was a younger age and i think that's best summed up by over here in, in great britain in 1969 the representation of the people act lowered the voting age from 21 to 18 and that to me feels pretty significant because if you think about the difference in students between when they start university and end university or if they start an apprenticeship and end an apprenticeship in those three years for me i think that really does show how far society had moved i think in the 60s i mean you could you could argue and say how much change has there been there since really what we do you know sort of women's liberations versus me too and all that sort of thing but for me i do i do feel that that shows it wasn't it didn't cause change so much i mean you could say yes it, it did perhaps cause change in that maybe it you know maybe it made it easier to to get I don't know maybe it made easier to get sort of radical ideas in the political sphere I don't know but for me not so much not so much a change in itself but a representation of the change that had happened I think yes and of course just talking about that sort of 1960s being a period of change I'm rather in agreement with Philip Larkin who sort of to paraphrase said uh, the the 1960s started in 63 with the Beatles first LP um, and there's an argument that the 60s started in 1963 and ended in about 1974 just before the yeah. advent of yeah. punk but no I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm with you there I didn't realise I have to say that the voting age had been reduced as recently as 1969 again it's mm. one of those extraordinary things that before 1969 anybody under the age of uh, 21 one was disenfranchised. You and had that, no and say. That, you know, and look at it. You know, look at look at why young people were so angry and why they why they. And of course, yeah. now there's an argument of whether or not we should have votes at 16. It's it's interesting to see whether or not that's going to happen. Like you said, there are certain bits of British law where you think, hang on, is that only? Is that only? I mean, again, in America, Rowan Wade was 69, I believe. I mean, the the, the sort of abortion case. Mm. And over here, I always use this as a kind of a shocker of people. I mean. You know, you, you only had the, the Butler reforms for homosexuality, which which reduced, sort of decriminalised homosexuality in a really limited way mm. in 1967, in the same way that, yes, the Representation of the People Act in 1918 that gave women the vote 
was still, you know, gave very a very limited number of women and working class men the vote. It didn't give all women the vote. And so, you know, you could say that the Butler reforms weren't quite all that. But the the thing that I that I sort of find interesting about about this sort of the the idea of, of 69 and, and and sort of widening or, or narrowing the voting the voting age and because I, I mean if it had if we had uh, it's curious to think that if we'd reduced it in more recent years down to 16 years old we'd probably have had a huge difference yes. in recent elections and Absolutely. referendum and, uh, coming next what's so great about Robert Smith and the Cure. That's... A genuine question rather than, you know, a sort of a snark. <laughs> That's next, right after The Cure. You say yes, I say no. You say stop, and I say go, go, go. Oh, no. You say goodbye, and I say hello.
albums. They're often rather less than we would wish for with, with a load of artists we've never heard of bandwagon jumping on the back of someone else's fame. Happily, that's not the case here. A brilliant album featuring artists covering Paul McCartney songs approved by Paul himself. And this album features Billy Joel, Dylan, Brian Wilson, Chrissy Hind. It's a long list of uh, superstars and uh, including there The Cure from the 2014 album The Arch of McCartney. Mm. Uh, that, that was the cure with James McCartney on keyboards and backing vocals and Hello Goodbye. Yeah, it was rather nice. I rather liked that, actually. I thought it was... It was, it was. I hadn't heard that before. I like a Beatles cover, and I thought that was very good. A nice touch to have James McCartney with him as well. Very much so. I, I think I used the word um, endearing earlier, and somehow that's... There's, there's no better word, I think, to describe Robert Smith and the cure. Endearing and enduring as well, I suppose. Robert Smith is one of those wonderful, singular performers we seem to specialise in in here in the UK and the same frame as Marky Smith and Kate Bush and in another world Kenneth Williams uh, Ken Dodd if you like Robert (laughs) Robert, just these singular people who I can't imagine having that same degree of success elsewhere we seem to embrace this form of eccentricity and I think Robert Smith is exceptional unique and a little bit off the wall in the best possible way 43 years as lead singer, guitarist, songwriter for The Cure, and probably more love today than ever, and rather like Kate Bush. You don't see much of Robert Smith in the public eye, a quiet man who seems to relish his home life. We don't see him at opening nights or falling out of the doors of the Groucher Club. George, just how great is Robert Smith? Well, the thing is, is that that's a question that I'm asking you. Mm. I mean, when it comes to what's so great about The Cure, obviously I prefer prevention. Oh! Oh. Oh. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, No, I'm quite a... The Cure, one of those bands that I really like particular songs of theirs, uh, that I, you know, stuff like The Love Cats, um, uh, Boys Don't Cry, um, In Between... You know, I could reel you off loads of songs and singles of theirs that I really like, but I've just never really dived into them properly. I'm not really sure why, because I don't... You know, I really like them. I think they're really good, but I've never quite gone whoa he's a genius because i've never quite had the chance to do so so actually i'm going to turn the back the question back onto you and saying you know why why do i really need to jump into the fall where do i start where's the best place to start with the fall and please don't say a best of is there a good album oh lord you see i was going to say the best of and there's a good reason oh, okay. for it all right then well um, in which case i'm willing to be bartered down on no, this. That's fine. because i i see them essentially as a singles band oh i see so maybe i am doing this right yeah I, th- I think you are but i think there's still something memorable and wonderful about that um i you know i've got fed up as you know in recent years it's why i'm a big supporter of spotify and the breaking down of the cd and albums thing because i think we all got a bit i certainly got fed up with paying 15 quid for a cd cd with one or two good songs on it and then skipping through 13 more um and so i don't think there's anything wrong in fact i think it's something to be celebrated to be a singles band there's also something wonderfully heartwarming that um robert smith and mary paul his partner have Mm. been they've been together since they were in the same drama class at school at the age of 14 oh that's adorable i really like that and they got married in 1988 so their 31st wedding anniversary this year also still living for the last um 30 or 40 years on the coast in west sussex and um when, when the cure are out on tour Um, which they are this year, by the way, Robert phones Mary every night 
just before uh, they go on stage. And I don't think you'd pick up that kind of sweetness. No, and that is so adorable. It, it, I'm such a fan of that. Good luck to them. That's that's great. Exactly. So, you know, with the teased back hair and the eye, you know, the make face makeup and everything, one would just perhaps one-dimensionalise Robert Smith. But there's, I think there's a lovely, warm family man in there. But what... Now, we were, you were saying where to begin. What a legacy to date as well. 13 studio albums, five mm. live albums... And this is why I say, let's celebrate them being a singles band. 37 singles, of which 27 of those 37 singles made the UK top 50. And they've had huge success all around the world. Quite rare for a kind of post-punk, kind of independent kind of band. They've had enormous success in America. Uh, Albums and singles have all made significant inroads into the Billboard uh, Mm. Hot 100 or Billboard Top 200 albums. So I I just say a great musician, a great bloke, Robert Smith and The Cure. Yes, uh, amen to that. I will go and dig out a singles compilation and enjoy it very much, I'm sure. Now, talking of people who are exceptional, unique and live in Sussex... <laughs> this is excellent, excellent name. One of your finest pieces of work to date, I feel. When you're not reading Russell Brand's, Russell Brand's autobiography this week, what are you <laughs> going to be up to this week? When I've run out of kindling for my fire, <laughs> I have no fire, but the, the sentiment remains. Um, I am doing something this week, actually. I will be at the Drift In Bar Ooh. in Hastings, which is on 91 to 92 Queen Road, Hastings, opposite Morrison Supermarket, for those people that navigate in that sort of way. Um, funnily enough, in front of the road where um, it's sort of behind the bar runs the road where my nan and, and granddad had their B&B when they first moved down oh, to Hastings. Well, most people will nine... know it for with, that, yes. Yeah, indeed, with my... With the blue plaque, yeah, when my, when my nine-year-old mother, when they were the original DFLs in 1962, before the Hastings DFL phenomenon was a thing. Well, I'm DJing at a, at a night that's fairly sort of newish. Um, it's at the Drifting. I'm really looking forward to it. It's, a, it's, it's sort of next Saturday, so that's Saturday the second, and uh, it's run by a chap called Ren- Remy Vibesman, who is a sort of local... DJ extraordinary. I wonder if that's his real name. Well, I'm. Uh, who knows, frankly, who knows? So this is the Rare Groove Lounge is the name of the night. So I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to play, but I'm sure I'll find some things that are, that are interesting. Um, people that sort of are connected to me on Facebook, um, I, I often try and put my track list from when I DJ mm. out, and, and Remy actually came across my track list online and rather liked them. So uh, so I'm looking forward mm. to it. Uh, he runs lots of nights locally, and they're always a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to bumping shoulders with Alan and Funky Francis, who is the other guest. Um, yeah. the, the three of us, Remy and Alan and I, will be playing some tunes. So I'm really looking forward to that. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to executive producers Rona and Hilly. Yes, my thanks to everyone involved in this enterprise. Indeed. Playing us out then, Jules, a lovely track from former Mercury Prize winners. Indeed, although I still haven't heard that album. I'm a big fan of Young Fathers. I bought um, their awfully titled second album and... Um, it's called something like Black Men or White Men Too, or something. It's something it, it, incredible. I can't be bothered to remember what it's called because <laughs> okay. I'm so offended by it because I think it is so crass. Mm. Um, I, their Mercury-winning album was called Dead, and uh, no one had really sort of heard of them at that point. Um, 
White Men and Black Men 2. Um, it's in a superb album with a dreadful title. Uh, mm. This is from their latest, which came out last year, which is called Coca Sugar. And I think they're such an interesting band. They're sort of mi- they're, they're mixed. They've got a, they've they've got a mix of people from mix of backgrounds from uh, from Scotland originally, and they very from Edinburgh, and they very much feature prominently in the Train Spotting sequel, the T2 soundtrack. They did six songs, I think, for that, and three made it onto the three or four made it onto the album, and. I, I love this. I, I, I've been. It's been an earworm for me all week. I've danced in kitchens to this. Mm. Apologies to everybody who's listened to this <laughs> song this week because I have just played it continually. Um, I, I just, I really like it. It's got such a great kind of vibe to it, and the whole album is really good actually. It's quite experimental. Um, I, I was listening to it the other week, and we, we had to turn it off because uh, there was a, there was a, the, the dinner table required calm, which this album wasn't quite providing at that <laughs> point in time. But um, I do, I do really particularly like this song. It's a great album, but this is really strong, I think, and it's been all over the radio as the single. So this is uh, Young Fathers, and this is Border Girl. Yeah. 
You have been listening to a DAC Media production.